I'd like to have open in front of you Psalm 40, and we're only going to be looking at the opening part of this psalm and what it is to be saved out of the pit. And really, very simply, there are three things that I'd like for you to see this night in this psalm. Firstly, what we are saved from when we're brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ for ourselves. Secondly, what we are saved for or to. The psalmist tells us what we are saved from, what we are saved for. And then thirdly, to see the Savior himself. It's clear when you look at this psalm that there is more than one voice speaking in it. The title tells us that it's a psalm of David and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King David is writing and he tells us early in this psalm about his experience of the Lord dealing with him. And really in that respect, these early verses are David's own testimony, how God has saved him and delivered him, not only in that initial instance, but also in other circumstances in his life, brought him to trust him and to know the Savior and to rest in his God. But there's another voice here too, greater than that of David's. And you see it and hear it, particularly in verses 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Now, friends, that is not David speaking, as it were. It is great David's greater son. It is the Lord himself speaking as the Savior of David and as the Savior of all those who are brought to know God for themselves. And so you have these two voices, and that's often the case in the Psalms. And so the psalmist begins to speak, and then it's as though the inspirer of the book of God lifts up his finger and says to the psalmist, Now, quiet, I will speak. And so the first voice is, David's own testimony as to what he is saved from and saved to. And then we have the second speaker is the Savior himself, not only of David, but of all those who come to an experience of the grace of God. All those who come to know that deliverance from sin and death and have that gospel hope within them. And so it's Christ's voice that is heard saying, Behold, I come. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, Christ had not fully come in that sense. He'd come through types and Old Testament sacrifices. He had come, as it were, in symbols and prophecies and promises. But for us in this gospel age, in this New Testament age, he has come, the Savior of sinners. And we see it all here before us in this psalm, what we are saved from, what we are saved to, and the one who does the saving, announcing his glorious intention and his gracious work. So let's look at these things together then. What have we been saved from? Well, look at verses 1 and 2. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the Mary clay. So David there, in very vivid language, is expressing his own personal experience of being saved, of being delivered. And in that ultimate sense of being saved from sin, brought out of a a state of condemnation and under the wrath and curse of God, he tells us how he is delivered. You know, if we're believers, it's a good thing for us to talk about how we've been saved. You know, it's an idea really of sharing testimony that's in danger of being forgotten in many Christian circles today, but it's so important. You know, the gospel wasn't 
to give us material wealth and health or to teach us the power of positive thinking and so forth. The gospel was given to save us. And yet this word save is in being danger of being lost in some circles, but we must declare it. We have heard the joyful sound that Jesus saves. You know, the whole idea that David is speaking about, that God is the savior of his people, that God has delivered us from a a terrible condition, that he has saved us. That's why Christ came. Not just to be a, a good example, although that's true, not just to give us wonderful teaching and messages, the like of which have never been heard since the world began. That's true. But he came primarily to save us from our sins. You know, it's clear, it's even in his name. Matthew 1, 21, you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's no doubt there. Paul says the same thing when he's writing to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the heart of the message. And friend, let me be very clear with you tonight. If he is not our saviour, if he is not our Lord, then we are still in the dark. We're still in that pit. We're still in that desperate state. We must know him as saviour to be delivered. And you say, well, well, what are we saved from? How does this happen? It's interesting, if you look at verse 1, the psalm begins with true prayer. There's a a crying out to the Lord. There's a bearing of his heart. Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. Do you know, when God begins to deal with us in the gospel, we are given to truly pray. We're given to call out and cry on the Lord. You know, we may have said our prayers before, but this is different. This is calling on the Lord. This is seeking the Lord. This is engaging with the living God. Do you know, in the week, I was asked to go into one of the local schools and speak to a year six class about what I do and the life of the church and all those sorts of things. And the question answers at the end. One little girl put her hand up and she asked me this. She said, Pastor Stobbs, what is your favorite prayer? What's your favorite prayer? You see, the only type of prayer that she'd ever really known about was sort of set written prayers in one day, saying assembly and all the rest. So I asked, I said, well, you know, I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. And so she said, well, I like the Lord's Prayer. I said, well, that's good. And I explained to her that the Lord Jesus gave that prayer as a model for how we should pray if we're friends with God. And I explained about how there are lots of examples of people praying in the Bible. And they give us examples of how those who are friends with God spoke to him. And I said that my favorite prayers, like the ones in the Bible, are the ones by people who talk to God because they know him. And it all starts with praying for God to save them from their sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. So we don't just say our prayers in that regard. We are speaking with the living God. We are crying out to the living God. You know, David prays for his own soul to be saved. And God heard him and in his time delivered him. You know, maybe you're here tonight and you've been seeking the Lord for some time. And, you know, maybe you just don't feel as though you've got that answer yet. I would encourage you, don't give up. 
David said, I waited patiently for the Lord. Sometimes the the purpose of keeping us waiting on God's part is to remind us that we are but poor fallen sinners and that he is the Lord. But he hears our cries and he will deal with us. We seek him. And then David says that as he, he waited patient on the Lord, as he cried out to the Lord, he was saved out of a, a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. And you say, well, what is he talking about? Well, you know, you could apply that to so many things, some of the difficulties that we get into our lives. If, you know, even if we're believers, we can at times feel as though we're in a pit. Well, let's take it in terms of he's describing what it is to be a lost sinner in this world. It's a, a picture of this world. You know, what it is to be without God and without Christ and without understanding of salvation. You know, think of how vivid that picture is. A a horrible, dark pit, miry clay. It's so vivid in our minds. You know, a pit is a deep, deep hole. So deep that you cannot get out. It is a, a terrible thing to be trapped or imprisoned in a situation or a room that you, you cannot get out of. I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that. You know, you see some of the awful pictures of what has taken place in Turkey in that sense of, of those who may have yet survived and trapped in that enclosed situation and not being able to, to get out. It's an awful concept to be trapped. You know, a, a, a pit, a deep, deep hole. And the reality is that hell itself, you know, is a pit that cannot be escaped from. Once we're in eternity. You know, the Bible says that that God brings the sinner to see that this world is a fearful pit. And we don't see that until the Lord opens our eyes. You know, why is it that people around us don't see that this world is a, a filthy pit in which they're trapped? They don't understand that they're trapped in this world. And the enemy keeps them blinded. And what he does is this. He he throws them sort of little bits of pleasure just to keep them content in that sort of entrapment. You know, it keeps the, the party going and the music so loud to drown out the possibility of thinking or considering. No time to think, says the devil. Don't consider what is happening. Don't look around you. You just keep doing, enjoying yourself and all the rest of it. He doesn't want people to take time to see the ruin of this world and that it is a filthy, miry pit, that it is a sinful, broken world and that they can't get out of it. They can't escape that situation. And then miry clay. You know, there are many different kinds of soil, but the dirtiest kind you get really is is clay. You know, you can wash off soil and sand, but clay kind of sticks to you. It grips you and it it sticks to your skin and to your clothes. And and that's what the world is like. Its ideas stick to you. Filthy suggestions stick to you. All the the references and blasphemies about God and the unkind things that they say about the Lord Jesus, they stick to us. It's a picture of this world. And no wonder the Bible says about this world that it is lost and that men and women are in the pit, poor things are lost in this this, this sea of mud and miry clay, they're, they're in a pit and they're stuck and they're, they're helpless and they're desperate and they're hopeless and they don't know it. God has to show it to them. And we're all being swallowed up by it unless we cry to the Lord for deliverance. And no wonder the Bible says, don't love the world or the things in the world. 
The things of the world are not of God. They're the very things that God hates. And so the question is, do you, do you understand what this world is like? Do you see it for what it really is? Have you been rescued out of this pit by God? Have you been saved by his gracious hand? Have you cried out to him? You know, that's where it begins, what we have been saved from. And what are we saved to? It's interesting that David says that he's been delivered, that God has intervened and drawn him out. And then verses 3 to 4, And set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. It's interesting, again, going back to that whole matter of testimonies, it's interesting that, that sometimes when people give testimony, that the balance isn't quite right. They're so full of their own situation and themselves that they don't make as much of the Lord Jesus as they should. It's all about what they did or did not do. Whereas a good testimony like David here, he says, I was lost in a pit, but the Lord saved me. The Lord reached down. The Lord broke into my life. The Lord took hold of me. You know, one preacher says, you know, if you were literally in a deep pit and somebody threw you a rope and pulled you out, you wouldn't spend the rest of your life telling people how clever you were in climbing the rope. You'd say how kind this neighbor was that they took pity upon you and reached down and set a way in which you could get out. And so when we share testimony that way, you know, we should be looking to the Lord. Let our testimony what the Lord has done. You know? Ephesians 2, 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the way Paul describes the transformation. It's not that we decided that we changed ourselves, that, you know, we suddenly decided that we were going to get up and out and on a different path. No, David shows us the right way. It's not focused on him, it's on the Lord. How the Lord took him out of the pit, set his feet upon the rock, established his steps, put a new song in his mouth. You say, well, why does he describe salvation as having his feet set upon a rock? Well, you know, he has been given that firm foundation. It's a wonderful thing. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried running around in mud and clay. You see what happens. But here, you know, David's been lifted from a place of darkness and uncertainty to a place of light and stability and certainty. This firm footing means that he can walk with confidence knowing that the next steps will be on solid ground. You know, there's a world of difference between quicksand and rock. And God moves us when he comes from a sense of desperation to a sense of security. You know, that's the difference between the world's movements and the movements of a true believer. You know, the believer, we're on a rock in the sense of we know the truth. You know, we, we know what we should believe. We, we should believe what, what the scriptures say. We should believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and take him in his word. You know, we don't need to speculate about how this world was made or why we are here. The Bible tells us that God created and he created us to know him. When God tells us that he made the world, he, he made the world as he said he made it, the fact of creation. You know, when we consider this great sweep of history, we see that God is at work and God purposed to use and bless the people Israel to the Jew first and then Pentecost the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles and it continues to do so. And then we know that the Bible says that one day there'll be a judgment and we're moving towards that, that great and awful day. 
and Christ will be the judge of the world. How do we know these things? Because the Bible tells us. And so we're standing on the firm foundation of the word of God. And we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the rock of ages. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And there's a lot of slipping and sliding taking place in the world today. You know, the collapse of morality, basic standards of life. Why? It's not difficult to work out. The reason why we have so many slipping is because they're not standing on the truth. They don't even know what the truth is. And they tie themselves up in knots to try and get their own narrative across and they don't realize how ridiculous it sounds. Whereas we are standing upon the truth of God, upon the rock, we are delivered from that mire and we have a clarity. You know, some people look and they don't know why things are going wrong and yet the Bible tells us it's so clear. We've got to get out of the mire. We've got to get out of the pit and the only way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And also we've got to get on to that firm foundation of the word of God. We've got to get back to the truth of the Bible and the way of salvation in Christ alone. And you know, if we're believers, we need to remind ourselves of that because sometimes we can be pulled away and we can begin to be drawn into unhelpful sort of diversions and avenues away. We've got to stay firm upon the truth of the word, the simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when we keep to the teaching of Scripture, we know where we are. We know where we're going. We know what we stand upon, and we are safe. But if we leave the Bible, we're on quicksand, and then people get dragged down in all sorts of ways. And so we've got to watch ourselves, you and I. We're all the same. If we don't stand upon that rock, we will slip. And so David says, thank God. Thank God that I've been brought out of that fearful pit and miry clay and he has set my feet upon the rock. He has established my step. In other words, I know how to live. I know where I've come from. I know where I am. I know where I'm going and it's all of the grace of God. I'm on that narrow path. I'm on the way to heaven, to glory in God and it's all bound up in knowing Jesus Christ. Everything in the psalmist's mind is the right way, the right direction. You know, verse 4 is interesting, isn't it? Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. It's interesting, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, why he puts that there. Because that is what people always do when they're not on the rock, when they're in the mire. You see, they start to listen to the wrong people. They start to praise the wrong people. They have the wrong heroes, as it were. Instead of praising those that fear the Lord and walk in his ways, they praise those who don't fear the Lord and go in the opposite direction. They praise the proud and the, the blasphemers and the persecutors and the, the worldly celebrities and the, the immoral. They get the praise. And David says, when your steps are established, you won't praise those who go against God's ways. You won't respect the proud or the liars. There are many that are doing that in the world. All kinds of lies, lies of false religion, lies of things that we've never heard about before, all kinds of lies. And people getting praise for following those things. But the man of God doesn't do that. 
He stays true to the word and he's more concerned of what God thinks of him rather than what men think. So let me ask you again, have you been delivered from this pit? Are your feet on that rock, that solid rock? Have you cried out and called on the name of the Lord to be saved? If so, then don't praise those who go against God. Don't praise those who follow lies and deception. Follow those who walk in the truth. And then it also says this, not only has God set his feet upon a rock and established his steps, but he has given him a new song in his mouth. What does that mean? Well, you know, he's no longer singing the praise of the world, but he's singing the praises of God. He's singing the new song of salvation by grace. You know, that's all that matters to a Christian, singing the praises of God, the glories of grace, to rejoice in the glory of our God. You know, why is it called a new song? Well, because he's been given a new heart, a new spirit. God has saved him and made him new. And so now he sees the world with new eyes. And whereas before he lived for this world and for the slime and the filth of the pit, now he's delivered and he's on his way to this glorious kingdom. And no wonder he's got something to sing about. And friends, you know, if we're believers, we always have much to sing with all of our hearts when we sing to God. Let us excel in pouring out our, our song to him. Let us fill the place with that new song of grace. Worthy is the Lamb to exalt the Lord Jesus. And so what he has been saved from, what he has been saved to, and then the only Savior of sinners last left. Verses 6 to 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. You know, I hope, dear friends, as we've gone through, that you are able to sort of affirm that experience in your own life, that you've been saved. You've been saved from sin and death and hell and that you've trusted Christ and you've been saved to this glorious future of walking with the Lord to be rescued and delivered. And now we have the Savior himself speaking. David steps aside, as it were. He has been speaking of the rock. He has been speaking of the one who delivers. He has been speaking of the Savior. And then indeed the Savior says, Behold, I come. Now, friend, what does the Lord Jesus mean when he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Now, I mentioned this recently when we were in Psalm 51. It does not mean, as some have foolishly tried to argue, that the old covenant sacrificial system was man-made and that God never required the sort of sacrifice and people to kill bulls and goats. That's a poor argument. God himself appointed the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the, the tabernacle and the temple, all those sorts of things, you know, as a, as a picture, it had that purpose of pointing to the Lord Jesus. What Christ means is that although God appointed those bulls and goats in the Old Testament, yet God did not regard their blood as being of sufficient value to save souls. They were all pointing to the greater sacrifice. They were all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that would happen at Calvary at the cross, as Jesus would offer himself the ultimate Lamb of God. And so 
Christ is saying here these offerings of Old Testament times are not sufficiently valuable to save you. Therefore, in my love for you, I'm coming to do it myself. I'm going to lay down myself. You know, there's a very simple and obvious lesson here. We must not trust in anything or anyone but Jesus Christ for salvation. In the Old Testament, those who were truly saved, they saw Christ through the blood of the sacrifices. In other words, those who were truly the Lord's people in the Old Testament, they knew well that the animals themselves were only a picture, a shadow, a type of the one who would come. You know, they knew that. How much they, they saw, we never know and will never know in this world, but they looked beyond these things to God's promised provision. They saw that Messiah was coming and it was the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, whom they had really trusted. Now, you know, those who were hypocrites amongst the Jews, they saw nothing more than the ceremonies. Just as hypocrites in the so-called Christian church see nothing more than things like baptism and the Lord's Supper, they, they don't see Christ in those things. They just see the outward, the ceremonies. You know, you and I must see Christ in those ordinances. You and I must see Christ in that which we are coming to do together. You know, Jesus says here, Behold, I come. And it's a, it's a wonderful prophecy of the fact that Jesus was going to come into this world to do that work, that saving work, that he was going to be born at Bethlehem. And friends, what a miracle this was. A miracle of miracles that God himself, seeing our predicament in the pit, and in the, the mire, in the clay, in the filthiness said, I am going to come down to deliver you. I am going to come down and save you at immense expense to myself, even the blood of my dear son, Jesus Christ. It's a staggering, staggering thing. And sometimes we, we say it so lightly, we say it so easily that we don't realize the vastness that God the Son should come to save us. Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Again, that is a staggering statement. You say, well, what does it mean? What is the, the scroll of the book? Well, I would agree with those who highlight a couple of things. Firstly, the eternal predestination of God, the book of his eternal decree. You know, and then as a result of that, it refers to the Holy Scriptures, the Bibles which are a, a concise, selective record of the decrees of God. So you have that, that vast, glorious plan of God, and then you have that which is revealed in Scripture, the book of His eternal decrees, and then the book of the Scriptures. You know, these things which are there for us, they are, as one explains, a sort of micronesia of the decrees of God, the great decrees shrunk to a condensed book called the Bible that we can read. You know, that's a wonderful privilege. You know, when you pick up this book, this book of God, you are reading about the eternal decrees of mighty God. You know, they describe for us there the things that are written in heaven, heaven that, that matropedia, as it were, that, that vast array of the decrees of God. And these things which are written in Scripture for us are absolutely reliable because they reflect those eternal purposes of our God. 
You know, God has promised from the very beginning after the fall that one would come of the seed of the woman who had bruised the serpent's head. The Lord Jesus came to do the will of God. The law of God was written on his heart. Now, again, a comment on that. What is the law that is referred to here? Well, it's what we call the mediatorial law. Now, that means it's not just the Ten Commandments you know, which is for, for men and women, but the mediatorial law was that special law for Christ. Let me explain. What did God require of Christ? Far more in that sense than he requires of you and me. You see, you and I are required to be perfect according to the law. Christ is required to be both perfect and to give himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Nobody else was ever required to do that. Nobody else could ever do that. And friend, I tell you that there are certain elements of those who call themselves the Christian church who are proclaiming that every one of us, if we are Christians, could have been one to go to the cross. That we have equal ability in the spirit to go to the cross. That is blasphemy. Christ and Christ alone could do that work at Calvary. Even from his earliest childhood, our Lord knew that he was born to die. You know, whenever Jesus read the Scriptures, Bible study for him was a reminder of his mission, that he was going to the cross to die for sinners. You know, he knew it even very clearly at the age of 12 when Mary and Joseph sought him at the temple. You know, they didn't see him for three days, and then they found him uh, sort of answering questions in the temple and asking questions of the the learned doctors of the law. And Mary is amazed at this. You know, when they, they find him, they, they say to Jesus in Luke 2, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have, have sought you anxiously. You know, they've been looking for him. How does the Lord Jesus respond? 12 years. Luke 2, verse 49. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? You know, she had no idea what he meant, but he was saying, behold, I come. Behold, I come to die for my people. Do you not know that? I was born to suffer on the cross. I've come to do the will of my Father and ultimately to remove the blood of bulls and goats and to shed my own blood as the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God slain from before even the foundation of the world. And friend, this precious blood alone has value to take away all your sin, all your guilt, because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Nothing else does. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you know that this night? Is that your hope? Is that your plea? You know, this is the deliverance. This is the promised deliverer. This is the one who has come to do these things. You know, as we finish, a couple of closing thoughts. You know, if you're a believer tonight, are you remembering to speak of this Lord Jesus? You know, not everyone is called to, to preach, but every true Christian is called upon to be a witness and to give testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not easy. You know, we, we are fearful, but... The Lord will give us what we need. And friend, you know something? The Lord will give you the grace you need and you have got something to say 
that the world around us needs to hear. You are those ambassadors, how God has delivered you from this pit. You know, others out there, all around us, our neighbors in this street, in this town, they are still in the pit. But by the grace of God, you've been brought out of it. And so pray that God will help you to be a good witness, a good testimony giver to those poor sinners who need to hear what our great God can do. You know, I think it's tremendous that when God gives us deliverance from the pit, when he puts a new song in our mouth, his aim is not only for our benefit, but also for the benefit of others through us. God wants to use you to be a blessing to those around you. And what about those of you finally who are still seeking this salvation? Maybe you're here tonight. What has this passage got to say to you? Well, it reminds you of this. Jesus really does say he can do these things for you. You know, it may be that you're looking at those around, maybe those who that you know are Christians, and you say, well, it's all very well for them. You know, they, they're believers, and they've been walking with the Lord for many years, but I'm just struggling at the gate and, and trying to get in. You know, if you're still struggling at the gate, wait patiently on the Lord as David did. Cry out to him, and the Lord says that if you seek him with all your heart, you will truly find him. The one who comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. He will save to the uttermost those that call on his name. And you know, when you do, when you do call on his name, when you know that deliverance, you'll be able to say, just like the psalmist, he brought me up from a horrible pit. He brought me out of the miry clay. He has set my feet upon a rock. He has established my steps. He has given me a new song. Praise to our God. May it be that you know what it is to be saved out of the pit. And it is only found this deliverance in Jesus Christ. The Savior of sinners. The one that we see even in this psalm. May you look to him alone for your salvation. And may God be gracious. Amen.